turn with me again this morning to 1 Samuel 17. If you were with us a couple of Sundays ago, we, we read the first maybe two-thirds of this chapter together <clears throat> up through verse 37. And uh, this is the well-known story of David and Goliath. And uh, we took the first half of the story together and the main uh, thrust that we saw from the text, unlike perhaps many of the sermons that you have heard on this story before, uh, was not really focused on David or anything in David that led him to do the things that he did or his courage or his cleverness or his military prowess or anything of, of that nature, but that the story focused really, at least in the first section, we said it was a matter of perspective. So that to the Israelites, their perspective was nothing can save us, right? The Philistines are here and they have come out with this giant against us and they have longed to be redeemed and saved and delivered from the hand of these that sought to oppress them. But they looked at the size of the giant and thought, man, there is absolutely no hope. And so they were paralyzed and gripped with fear, and they represented in the text something of the perspective that said, look, there's nothing that can save us. Now, the Philistines, who had come up in, uh, in war against the Israelites, it was very interesting because in their perspective, they held to the view that man can save us, right? And, and Goliath, to some degree, represented this hope in men, this salvation by man, because what they did is they came before the Israelites and they... They ushered out their champion before them who was the biggest and the baddest and the strongest and the, 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 the greatest military champion of a nation. I mean, let's not forget this is a lot of folks. And they, they were prepared to rest all of their, uh, their, their hope in this one individual. In other words, that they marched him out before the Israelites and the Israelites were to find their champion and march him out before the Philistines. And then the two champions would battle one another and whoever was the victor, that would be the victorious nation, right? So, so that they were ready to put all of their hope in this man, this individual, in this guy, Goliath. He goes out, this giant, and he was mighty to be sure. A great deal of the text is given uh, to his size and stature and abilities and what he carried and whatnot. And I think rightfully so, we should acknowledge. Um, but he came out against the Lord, right? And so part of one of the things that we made a, a, a big deal about l the last time we studied was the language that we find there that he mocked the God of the Israelites or that he came out with the intention to um, sort of tear down the God of the Israelites. And that language actually comes in this chapter 17 time and time and time again. And I think, I think it should, should perk our interest a little bit. It should pique our minds to, to keep that in the forefront that what's at stake here is something more than perhaps what we see. So that he comes out to mock the God of the Israelites. And then David, unlike the Israelites who said nothing can save us, and unlike the Philistines who said man can save us, David... If you're with us, we saw he had a very different perspective, didn't he? he? The only Christian in the story, right? The only faithful one who, who, who looked at the, the situation of life 
and said, this is nothing for God to fix. And he said, God can save us. And so he represented a very different perspective. And actually, some, someone who was with us, one of you who was with us last time, they came to me after the service and they said, you know, when we read, because it was a lengthy section, these 37 verses together, when we read it all together out loud, um, as we were reading down through it, for, for sort of the first time, they said, for sort of the first time, I was able to see and realize David is the only one who gets it in the whole text. It's like just as you were initially reading it, I was able to see David is the only person, the only character in this story that seems to get it, that even has any concern for God and his involvement in the situation. He's like, and then your sermon was about David's perspective being that, that God can deliver and God can save. Um, And so, yeah, it was a matter of perspective. But if the first half of the story is about the perspectives of the individuals or the groups that are present in the story. The second half of the story is going to focus more on the actual encounter. So that the the characters, at least the groups, the Israelites, the Philistines, they sort of drop into the background. And to the fore, in in a more unique and special way, come these two particular individuals being David and Goliath and the battle that's going to ensue with them. You also have Saul here as a main character, and we'll see that in just a moment, the king. But if last time was a matter of the perspective of the individuals and the characters that were present in the story, this week is a bit different. It, it's, it's, more, it's, it's not about what was done. Uh, the, you know, it's not about what David did or what Goliath did or what the results were or anything to that nature. It's really about how and more particularly why the individuals in the story did what they did. And, and friends, I think this is super uh, I think it's really pertinent to our time and our culture. And let me, let me tell you why. We live in a culture, particularly in the West, where activism is, is, is more important than it's ever been. Where there is more activism for more things than you... Listen, there are activist groups that give of their time and their resources and their life and, and, and exist for the sole purposes of whatever their, their mission is and whatever their agenda is. And they, they go to the ends of the earth to protect that and to, to be activists for that agenda and for that mission. We, we live in a culture where activism is as rampant as it's ever been. And activism is not a bad thing. Okay. Many of Many of a lot of the missions and the the causes to which so many people are activists are noble causes. I mean, you know, those who are activists about, you know, creation and being good stewards of uh, the world and of the animals in the creation and the plants and not uh, prostituting those resources for our own gain only and trying to take good care of those things. Friends, to some degree, that's not a completely... uh, irresponsible or unreasonable thing to, to be an activist for. Uh, people, people are activists and are passionate and go to great lengths to defend all sorts of religious and spiritual and moral realities in our culture that, I mean, currently hotly debated and, 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 and activists, you know, activist groups seek to destroy one another over the issue of marriage. And we should, you know, the, the point is that not, my point is not to say that all act, activism is bad, but what I want you to see is that in, in, in all of the cases of all of the organizations that exist to protect and to go to great lengths to defend and to do certain things and that have certain agendas and that are on certain missions, in every single one of them, no matter how noble, you can be the most extreme activist for the most noble and right and even biblical cause. 
And you can be totally erroneous in the way that you do it. Because if you do not do it for the right purpose, and if you do not do it in the right way, then you may as well not have done it at all. And so the second half of the story of David and Goliath is not so much about David. And I said that last time, and I'm going to say it again. Friends, if we look at the story of David and Goliath, and I give you sermons like you have heard time and time again about how you can be more courageous and more clever and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go out and face the giants in your life, let me tell you, not only have you missed the whole point of the story, you've gotten it totally backwards. You've gotten it totally backwards. The story is not about David's ability. It's not about what David did. It's not about David's courage. It's not about any intrinsic thing in David. It's about why David did. That's what it's about. It's about to what end David went. And so in order to help us see that, if you give careful attention to the text that's present, textually what you see is that there is a comparison made beginning in verse 38 between Saul the mighty I mean between Saul and David and their relationship but particularly between David the little shepherd boy and between Goliath the champion okay and that that's where I want us to begin so so we're just going to ask three questions what did Goliath have what did David have and why does it matter so what Goliath had what David had when they went out to battle and why they went And then why it matters to us at all. So let's read the text together. We're going to begin reading in verse 38. We're going to read down through verse 58, the end of the chapter. Not quite as lengthy as last time, but still a a bit of a section for us to read. And then we're going to try to to look at this and glean some help from it this morning. Before we read this text, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we cannot come to your word of ourselves and, 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 and know it. We can't read it and get it. We can't understand it. Uh, We are prone to abuse it. And so, God, we pray very simply that you would open your word to us or that you would implant its truth deep in our hearts. God, that you would give us hope in the gospel as a result of what we read or that we would learn more deeply to trust you. Um, So speak to us now from your word and use it to make us into into the image of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel 17, beginning beginning in verse 38, it says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, And he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give you and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and he drew it out of its sheath and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, and he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as, and as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Amen. God's word for us this morning. So what is it that Goliath had? And friends, the point of this story, especially textually as it's given to us, is that, is that Goliath had a great deal. And there is a direct comparison being made between what Goliath had in terms of human ability and resources. There is a direct comparison between that and what David lacked or didn't have. Okay? So let's begin. What is it that Goliath had? If you notice, beginning in verse 38... And you look all the way down through about verse 50, what you, what you find is that almost nothing is mentioned, very little is mentioned, or time is given to talking about David and what it is that he had. But a great deal is made about the giant Philistine Goliath and what it is that he had to say and what it is that he had in his hand. Let's go to verse 41. It says, the Philistine moved forward and he came near to David. And he had a shield bearer that was out in front of him. And the Philistine looked and he saw David and disdained him. The idea that he laughed or derided or mocked him. He was amused by him, I think, is the force of that. For he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. So he, he thought very little of the abilities of David, even personally. But, but this giant comes out not only with all of the size and stature and hopes of a nation that we saw previously, but he comes bearing armor. He has an armor bearer. He has a shield bearer before him. He has a shield. He has a sword. He has a spear slung around his neck and over his shoulders. And then he comes out to David. Am I a dog that you've come to me with sticks? Notice he's, he's, he's helping us to see the, the contrast being made between the amount of uh, battle utilities that uh, utensils that he brought and, and how little David brought. You come to me with sticks. What, what am I, a dog, he says. 
He says, come out to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then go down to verse 48. The Philistine arose and came and drew near to David and ran quickly toward the battle line. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet David. And then the battle is going to ensue. And the battle, at least the testimony of the battle here in the language, uh, it, it, there's only like one, two verses is all it takes. There's not really much battle that is there. I think what the text is trying to get us to acknowledge is that in terms of human reason and logic, in terms of human ability, Goliath had everything. Okay, Goliath came with the sword and with the spear, and David had nothing. Goliath came with size and might and power, and David came with no stature and nothing to offer. Goliath came with the hope of a nation and with the trust implicitly of men and explicitly of men. David came with the people on his side of the camp thinking very little of who he was. The point is to help us to see that in terms of human reason and logic, Goliath had everything and David had by human standards nothing. Go back up to the text. Though though Goliath came with all of these things, if you go back up to verse 39 and 40, David tries to put on the armor of Saul. So he straps the sword over the armor and he tried in vain to go. Don't miss that. That he tried to go out with the armor and with the sword and he was unable to do so. It was a, it was a vain attempt at leaving and heading out to battle. And then it says, for he had not tested them. And I think that we're in our, I think we're sort of given to understand that what it means is, is he, he was not used to them or it was awkward and he had not practiced with a sword enough and it was going to be of no benefit to him. Friends, a sword with which you have not practiced is more benefit in battle than no sword at all. Uh, right? Armor that, that may not fit just right and may be a little awkward and, and difficult to bear, that is better than heading out to battle with no armor at all. Why was it in vain that he attempted to leave? Because he was too small to carry the load. Right? Much has been made about the size of Goliath that he carries out into the, the encounter or into the battle. And much is now being made about the relative size of David. Now, it's not to say that he was tiny and inept. That, that's not particularly the point. But the point is to show that he had nothing in himself that should have encouraged his uh, intent to battle. He tries in vain when he straps on all of the armor and the sword and the, the utensils that he would have needed to go out successfully in battle. He tries in vain to go out. I cannot go with these, he says. I've not tested them. So David took them off, it says. So there is the picture of the giant with all of the, the utensils of war. And all of the size and all of the hopes of a nation and everything that you could possibly think of by human standards that is heading out. And then there is the boy David, who though he was not a child, he would have still been considered a youth. He was not an elder. He was a young man. He was a relatively small size. He went out with no armor. He had no protection. He had no sword. He had no spear. In fact, it tells us in verse 40, look, then he took his staff. He was a shepherd. What was he going to do against a giant with a sword, a spear, armor, a shield, and helpers with a wooden staff? 
That's why Goliath chides him. What, am I a dog that you've brought out a stick against me? He picks up a stick. He takes his staff. It's the only thing he knows. He takes it in his hand. And then look at what happens. He chooses five stones. They had been smoothed by the brook. And he put them in his shepherd's pouch. And he had a sling in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now to be sure, these could have been a mighty tool in the right hands. I don't want to downplay that on any level. I mean, that, some people were very good shots in that day and in the hands of an accomplished warrior. Uh, it, could have been, it, it could have been a weapon that was wielded dangerously. Um, I think the idea is that David was not a, an accomplished warrior. As a shepherd, he certainly would have had some use in defending the sheep against some of the bears and the lions that he's made reference to that he would go and take the sheep back from when they would come in and uh, sort of steal them away from the flock. And so that we have some reason to think that David would have been experienced with a sling and a stone. But friends, the point is being made, the comparison is being made, that relative to the tools that Goliath had at his disposal and the courage that would have resulted, David had nothing to go on. That is the force of the text. That Goliath, in terms of human understanding and reason and logic, had everything. He had every reason to be courageous, to run out to battle against this Israelite and against the God that he served. He had every reason, when men looked at him, to go. And David, we would have looked just as Saul did and just as his brother did and just as the Israelites did. We would have looked at David and thought, this is a huge mistake. Because he has nothing really to offer. And it's not just in this text. This is what the story, all of chapter 17, has been preparing us to understand. Remember, so far in the story, David has been derided, if you will, by by his brother when he comes out to battle and he inquires about the Philistine that's making all these threats against God and his armies and his people. And his brother tells him, listen, you're a a nitwit. You're, You're the little shepherd. Go back to where you came from. You're just up here mouthing off because you're looking for sort of arrogant personal gain. You want people to think more of you than what you really are. And the point is because there's really not much to you. And then he comes to Saul and he cannot carry the armor. He's too small to do so. And then at the very end, Saul, as the king of God's people, beginning of verse 55, it kind of recounts for us a side episode that was not recounted in the battle and in the circumstances between David and Goliath immediately, where as soon as Saul sees David going out to battle, who, who he did not have any armor, he did not have any size, he was not a champion of Israel, and he's running out to the battlefield to meet the Philistine. Saul wants to know, who in the world is this, Abner? Whose son is that? Why is it important that he wants to know whose son it is? He wants to know, what kind of pedigree does this kid have? What hope should we have in this young man? Do you see that everything in the story has been pointing to what? David's weakness. David's weakness, not David's courage, but David's weakness, not David's cleverness in taking five stones, but his weakness and his utter inability. Everything in chapter 17 is helping you to see that David went out with nothing to help him, at least in terms of humanity. But David did have something. He did have something spiritual. He had a deep faith in God, didn't he? We've seen this because in the text, remember, the first half of the story is helping us to understand David's perspective on the situation, which is what? That this giant may be a giant, but he's uncircumcised. 
This giant may be big, but he's not as big as the God he mocks. And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should mock the armies of the living God? You remember that language? So David, though he had nothing in terms of human uh, prowess and military might, he had nothing really to bring and to offer in battle. He had a deep faith in God that was bigger than the Philistine giant. And friends, this faith is recounted because after the Philistine mocks him and says, am I a dog that you've brought a stick out to me? And he declares to David that I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Look at verse 45. David then responds to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. What David is, David is preaching my sermon to you. The text is telling us. David says, you have come out with everything humanly possible, with every reason, humanly speaking, to believe in yourself. Hope in salvation by man. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Notice he didn't say, but I come to you with five stones and a sling and I'm pretty stinking good with them. That's not what he said. I came to you with a staff and I'm, I can swing it hard. You come to me with everything a human could have that would lead to victory. But I come to you with nothing. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, the one whom you have mocked. See there, remember that language I said time and again, it's brought up that he is defaming God. He is deriding God almighty. The Philistine has come out and is mocking the Lord God of hosts. Friends, do you see that what David saw was the honor of God at stake? Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because David, though he had nothing in terms, in human terms, to bring to the battle, he came with a deep faith in God. But more than that, and this is back to the beginning when I said it's about how he came and why he went out. It wasn't because he was courageous and clever. It was none of those things. It is because David looked at an uncircumcised Philistine, a pagan, an unbeliever in the Lord God Almighty, who dishonored his name and his people. And David said, I'm willing to give my life for the honor of God. Why did David go? Because he had a deep faith in God, but secondly, because he had a deep commitment and concern for God's honor. Friends, one of the problems with all of the activism in our culture today is that it is not done out of a concern for God's honor. You can be zealous for good things. But if it's zealous for good things in the wrong, for the wrong reasons and to the wrong ends, what, what I'm saying is, friends, ultimately, if by our activism, if by our giving of our lives for certain causes and certain missions and certain things, even the missions of the church and the ministries that we do, if the ultimate end of all of those things is not the honor and the fame and the glory of the Lord God Almighty, then we ought not be doing them. And no matter how zealous we do them, and no matter how much of our life and our time we give, we do them wrong. We do them with wrong motives. We do them with a darkened heart. We do them for our own glory. 
David says to the Philistine, you come to me with everything and I come to you with nothing. But in the name of the Lord, in whom I trust, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And look at what he says in verse 46. Notice that it's not courage in himself. It's not self-confidence. It's God-confidence. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Do you understand that David could have gone with no stones? David could have gone with a gun, a sword. The point is not what he took. Because David's hope and courage was in none of those things. That's why he didn't need them. I've come to you with nothing except for confidence in the God whom you have mocked. And this day that God will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? What was David hoping to cut off his head with? Who knows? He must have thought he was going to do it with his own with with it, the giant's sword. David didn't carry a sword. He acknowledged, "You come to me with a sword and a javelin and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord." Friends, he may not have had anything in human terms, but he had everything in spiritual terms. A deep faith in God and a deep concern for His honor. Now, why does this matter to me and you? Why does it matter to me and you? Very simply put, listen, we must understand that the preeminent concern of God in everything that he does is himself. That is a huge, an important lesson that we must learn from this text. And it changes everything. It changes how we understand the circumstances of our own life. When trials come upon us, when difficulties come our way in prosperity and in poverty, in health and in sickness, in all of the difficult, the difficulties of life and the circumstances we face and the tragedies that come upon us, it changes everything because what we must understand is that in good and in relative bad, at least from our perspective, that God is doing everything he is doing in my life and in yours. He brings everything into our lives and does everything he does in creation, not for us and not on account of us first, but on account of himself and his own name and his own fame and ultimately for his own glory. Friends, do you know how much of the scriptures talks about God as a jealous God for himself? I mean, I hope that God blesses you tremendously. But friends, do not, do not be misled into thinking that it is because of you and that it is ultimately for your good and for your blessing. God only blesses you insofar as it makes you a conduit by which his glory is brought about. And friends, when trials come and when difficulties come and when tragedies come, friends, when we suffer... God wants you to suffer with Christ, that you would be made like Christ. That you would be made into his image, that you would be brought unto himself. Why? Ultimately, that he would be glorified. Friends, the most important lesson that we must learn from David in this text is not how to be courageous in the face of danger, but it is to have a proper perspective on the situations of life and to understand that we must do all that we do. We must give of our lives. We must go into danger on account of the honor of Almighty God. Is it, is it of any value for us to concern ourselves with the things that God is not concerned with? And if it is his preeminent concern himself, shouldn't it be that of his people also? 
And friends, secondly, we must understand why this matters. Because David went in and because of his weakness. I think in the story, the very thing that qualified David for service in God's army, as the deliverer of God's people, as the appointed king to reign over them in the future, and as the champion over the champion Philistine, is not because of what he had, but precisely because of what he didn't have. It was his weakness that qualified him for service. I think about passages like 2 Corinthians twelve nine, where it declares to us that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Or if you turn to 1 Corinthians, a passage that I want us to read together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the opening of this letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Beginning in verse 26, listen to what he says. For you consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Speaking to God's people, to the church. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble of noble birth. You didn't have a good pedigree. It sounds a lot like David, doesn't it? Not many of you had anything to offer, but God chose you what is foolish in the world, what is of nothing to the world. Those of you who in the world and according to the standards of the world had nothing to offer, he chose you to shame the wise. God chose you what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose you what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That sounds just like the story that we just read, doesn't it? That it is our weakness that qualifies us for service in the armies of the king. God doesn't need your courage. God needs you to understand that you are nothing and that you're weak. That he is the vine and that apart from being attached to him, we can't do anything. You say, well, why? Why has God made it this way? Why is that the logic of the gospel? Look at the end of this passage. This is so, so that no human being would boast in his presence. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who becomes to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let no one who boasts boast in the Lord. Do you see? Why is it that God has ordained the weak to bring to nothing the strong, the dumb to overshadow the wise? Why? Because the more capable you are, the more prone you are to receive the glory. But the weaker we are, then our greatest accomplishments leave people astounded. And they bestow unto the Lord God who works through us all of the glory that is due his name. Do you see? That it is our weakness. That he... It is on account of our weakness that he uses us to do mighty things because, like David knew very well, he is preeminently concerned with his own glory. Friends, in short, praise God for your weakness. Do not think too much of yourself. Friends, your abilities are very small. You're not as clever as, we're not as clever as we think we are. Our methods are not as good as we think they are. We are not as well equipped as we think we are. We have very little to offer. We have, we have very little to offer. And friends, take great hope in that reality because like David, with very little to offer, God will do amazing things. Not to make us look good, 
Not to, not to put us on a pedestal, not to bless us and make us prosperous. Some of those things may happen, and praise God when they do. Friends, God will do mighty things through the week on account of his own name and his own fame and his own glory. So that when we boast, we must boast only in the Lord. And when men look at our accomplishments and they look at our victory and they say, how in the world is this possible? We hold up the head of the giant and we say, long live the king. For the battle is the Lord's and he does not save with the sword and the spear. He uses the weak and he saves by his mighty and powerful hand. Friends, like David, let's trust in it. And let's hope in it and it only. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us this day. Lord, thank you that, I mean, even in my own life, I thank you that you have used the weak. God, help, help me to understand that it is precisely on account of my weakness. God, that you use me, that you would be glorified that you would receive the honor. Lord, make us ready to fight for your honor. God, move us on account of your glory and honor. God, give us a willingness to suffer persecution and shame in standing up for your honor. God, help us to understand that your preeminent concern in all things is your glory and your fame and your name and your honor. And God, make that our concern also. That in all things we would seek you first in your kingdom. That in all things we would set aside ourselves, our loved ones, our families, everything that we have on account of your name and your fame and your glory. God, that we would give everything we have to, to, to bring it about in creation. Lord, we pray very simply now that you would use us in our weakness. That in our weakness you would be strong. God, that you would use our weakness to bring about your glory that everyone who sees would know that you are the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.